words that I'd like to direct your attention to are found in Revelation 4. We have finished up the letters to the churches, and then there's a shift in chapter 4 to the throne room of heaven. The Apostle John writes, beginning in verse 1, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones. And upon the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf, and the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the fourth Four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me again. Lord, as we look at your text, we pray that you would encourage us, you'd strengthen us, you'd give us understanding, so we might grow in grace and in your likeness. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. At some point in every person's life, they, they, they wrestle with the questions, the big questions of their life, such as, who am I? Why am I here? What is my purpose in life? What makes me significant? What is really of true and lasting value that, that's worthy of my pursuit? And the answers that a person gets to these questions really is what's going to direct the major decisions of their life. And I believe for most, if not all of us, at least our initial answer to those questions would probably have primarily ourselves in view. Either with a focus on achieving our major personal goals or on becoming well-known, respected. But the answer that the Bible gives to those questions 
can really be summed up in saying that you were created to worship God with all of your being. And I believe the chapter that communicates this truth the clearest is actually the one before us. Revelation chapter 4. Now, as you recall, the book started with John's vision of the glorified Christ who presents himself to John, and John describes what he sees. And then Christ presents to the, uh, some assessments to seven churches that resided in Asia Minor. And then after that assessment, the scene in the book shifts to a vision of the throne of heaven where John here describes the central aim of all creation, namely the worship of God. And there are really two parts of this vision. The, the vision of God's throne in verses 1 through 7 and the second part in verses 8 through 11 really reflect the proper response to worship. Now, here's where commentators in Revelation vastly begin to disagree. There's really two ways to approach our understanding, particularly of this uh, chapter and, and the next chapter. And that is, is this, is this depicting a literal scene in heaven or is it just merely symbolic? And, you know, good and godly men, men of who I respect, I, I, I happen to disagree with here, but uh, there's valid reasons for seeing this uh, either way. Um, I personally see this primarily as being symbolic. I don't think it's an actual, uh, an actual event, and I'll explain why in a minute. But it's okay, if, I mean, if it is an actual scene in heaven, then that's fine too. Uh, the significance is, is, is more or less the same. Um, but I don't believe that this is a real scene. Um, but I believe that uh, this, this vision full of symbolic imagery, that every element in the scene does communicate a particular truth. It's communicating truth, but symbolically. Um, and I think the same is true as most, of most prophetic visions. They're not actually depicting some reality someplace, but rather they're through symbol, communicating God's will or something about God and his character. Uh, they're not like live video. that you Like if you're watching a live video feed of maybe uh, the Wailing Wall in Israel or uh, you know, your, your, your baby monitor in the next room, what you're looking at when you see those live video feeds is an actual scene. These are more like... Um, emojis on a text message like they can they communicate something symbolically uh, but what's significant is this is what the symbol represents um, and that's that's what's being communicated here it's text full of symbolism for example you see uh, Peter's vision in Acts 10 we saw that just recently in Acts Peter had a vision of this sheet coming down from heaven loaded with animals now, the question is, did he actually see a sheet load with animals that God was showing off his heavenly zoo? Or was it just, was it that simply meant to convey something? Well, we know it's meant to convey something. Whether it was an actual sheet that he could touch or just a vision in his mind's eye. Uh, the point is, what does it convey? What's it symbolically convey? Here, of course, in Acts 10, it was conveying that the Gentiles were no longer considered unclean. Because all these animals that he was presenting to him that were once unclean were now considered clean. And Peter, of course, began to understand that as the chapter goes on. Or you could also think of the beasts in Daniel chapter 
7, the, 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 the picture of the, the, the bear and the lion and the, the leopard and the other beast fighting each other, right? Was, was, was that vision there just transporting Daniel to an actual fight between these four beasts? I don't think so. It was just conveying some spiritual truth. The, the, the beast symbolized four nations that would eventually rule over God's people. And the truth that they conveyed was precisely accurate. Babylon was overthrown by Persia. Persia would be overthrown by Greece and then later on by Rome. And Daniel had the benefit of having that vision explained to him. Um, we don't have the benefit of an angel explaining to us what's going on here. Uh, so it's impossible to be dogmatic about what's being symbolized. But we do have some clear statements in this passage that we should hold to that do indicate what the point of this passage actually is. So even if we can't be precisely certain about the symbolism that's being conveyed in each of these, in, in this scene, and in all these parts in the scene, all these symbols, we can be certain about what the passage is trying to convey. And these clarifying statements are found in verse 8 and in verse 11. And they, point, they clarify that the, the point of this passage is to, is to show that God is worthy of worship. And so these are really the interpretive key to all of the symbols, what these symbols are ultimately pointing to. And so as we go through this, I'm going to provide what I think is the best way to interpret these symbols uh, based upon how they're used in the rest of Scripture. But again, these are educated guesses. Uh, they're not dogmatic assertions. But what, we, what is not disputable is that all of this symbol in this chapter does point to the fact that God is worthy of worship. That we can know for certain because these texts, particularly verse 8 and verse 11, make that clear. So let's begin uh, with the vision of God's throne. The first thing the Apostle John sees in this vision is a door open in heaven. Right, the open door suggests that God is allowing John to peek into uh, God's purposes. He's going to be able to see what Jesus taught, essentially, in the Lord's Prayer. Right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is what it looks like for God's will to be done in heaven, and it should be being done on earth if earth lived according to how God designed us to live. And the voice that John hears, we know, is the voice of Jesus. This is the first voice that had spoken to him in chapter 1, verse 10. And the fact that it sounds like a trumpet conveys that it's drawing attention to everyone around. When a trumpet was blown in the ancient world, it was, it was like an alarm. Everybody would focus upon where that trumpet was being blasted because they'd know there's something important about to be announced. What John then sees next in the vision is the throne of God. And you'll notice that really the throne is the center of this whole vision. Everything revolves around the throne. And it's, it becomes actually a major theme in the rest of the book. Over 40 times in the rest of the Revelation, the throne is going to be spoken of. So this is a major central piece. So this isn't just a transition chapter. Four and five aren't just transitional. They're really setting the stage to the judgments for us to understand the judgments that are about to be poured out in chapter 6 through the end. And the throne finds its importance in the one who sits on the throne, namely God. 
But, but notice that, that John doesn't actually describe God. It's, it's pretty remarkable. Instead, he's simply depicted with the appearance of three jewels. Jasper, which is possibly referring to a diamond. Carnelian, which is a redstone. And an emerald. And honestly, nobody really knows what these three stones symbolize. There's some decent guesses. We do know that all three of these stones were a part of the high priest's breastplate. In Exodus 28, 17, they're mentioned. They were also in the foundation of the heavenly city that we'll look at in Revelation 21 in uh, months ahead. But my best guess is they convey God's holiness, God's judgment, and then God's covenant faithfulness. And the reason I think that is actually because these are the three attributes that are going to be conveyed about God throughout the rest of this book. These are the three things that this book emphasizes. God's holiness, God's judgment, and his covenant faithfulness. So, that would be my guess what they're symbolizing. After describing the throne and its appearance, John then describes what's going on around the throne. Again, the throne is central, and then he describes what's going on around the throne. And and note... Here in the text, the various and enigmatic prepositions that are used. Around, verse 4. Out from, verse 5. Before, verse 5. In the center of and around, verse 6. And it it seems that the point of the various prepositions, again, is to emphasize that everything is centered on the throne of God. Everything's oriented on the throne. Really, I think this image just conveys what Paul was communicating in Romans 11, 36, that from him and through him and to him are all things. And therefore, glory forever and ever belongs to him. John then describes the 24 elders around the throne. And then notice they're, they're, they're also sitting on thrones. They're wearing white garments and they have golden crowns. And with this, commentators are divided. Are these angelic beings? Usually those who take this as a literal scene of heaven believe this is, these are angels, uh, symbolic maybe of the saints or just symbolic of God's worship. Um, it could also be humans. Some people believe, especially those who hold this to be a picture of the throne room of heaven after the rapture. But I think it doesn't really matter whether these are angels or humans because I think it's just symbolic. What matters is what do they represent. And almost everybody recognizes they represent redeemed saints. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, The fact that they are 24 suggests that they actually represent both Old Testament and New Testament saints. The 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. Uh, Moreover, the attire that they're wearing, it builds off the promises that were given to the saints that overcome in the previous two chapters, chapter 2 and chapter 3. They're depicted as being co-rulers with God. They're sitting on thrones like he is. That's what Christ promised to those who would overcome. Their sins have been removed, like they're wearing white garments. And they have, they have successfully finished their spiritual race. They have overcome. We know that because they're wearing golden crowns. That's what the crown represented. So, again, these are the same promises. These are the same things Christ said he was going to give to those saints, those Christians in these seven churches, if they overcame. So, it seems like the best way to understand these 24 elders is these represent saints from both the Old and 
New Testaments who were genuine believers, truly born again, faithful saints. John also sees thunder and lightning coming out from the throne. And such meteorological uh, phenomena really are... It's common when God, when there's a theophany, when God's presence comes into uh, the realm of sinful human beings. There's smoke and lightning and thunder. And, and John says he beholds seven lamps or torches of fire before the throne. And John actually tells us what these represent. <laughs> Not exactly helpful, because he says they're the seven spirits of God. Well, that causes other problems. I thought there was just one God. One Holy Spirit, one person, one third person of the Trinity. So why is it seven? Well, you might recall that you know, the seven spirits are mentioned earlier in, uh, in the book of Revelation at the, with the vision of Christ. Um, probably the phrase seven spirits is drawn from Isaiah 11, chapters, uh, verses 2 and 3, where the Messiah is depicted uh, along with the seven operations of the Spirit. Uh, of course, the Messiah is who happens to be on the throne. And it says this in Isaiah. The spirit of Yahweh will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and strength. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Right? If you look at those, those terms in Isaiah 11 that I just read, uh, this is conveying, again, who Christ described himself to be earlier in Revelation. And what's remarkable in in here in Isaiah as well is the judgment of God. Because in verse 3 it says this, And he will delight in the fear of Yahweh, and he will not judge by what I sees, nor make a decision by what is here. So based upon the seven operations of the Spirit, the, the, the Messiah will have perfect clarity in judgment. The Spirit's going to bring about judgment along with the Messiah. And it says in verse Isaiah 11:4, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth, and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Well, that is exactly what's going to be conveyed in the book of Revelation. So probably the best way to understand the seven spirits is again reference to this description of the operations of the spirit with the Messiah um, in his rule. The theme of judgment that we see in Isaiah 11 also coincides with what Jesus says about the work of the Holy Spirit in the upper room. Jesus, of course, said, hey, I'm going going to go away from you. I'm going to be with the Father, but I'll send you the paraclete, the Holy Spirit. Now, that's typically translated the comforter, and for good reasons. Parkleo can be translated encouragement, comfort, exhortation. Exhortation is is the typical translation. But Jesus then actually defines what the work of the Spirit's going to be. In John 16, 7, he says, And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And of course, this fits exactly with what's going to happen in the rest of Revelation, chapter 6 through 21. So the Spirit first convicts us of of our deserved punishment, and then he directs us to the only means of escaping that judgment, which is Christ. And even after coming to Christ, one of the primary ways that the Spirit serves us is through conviction. 
We like to think of the Spirit primarily as the one who comforts us and leads us and assures us of promises, which He does. But one of the primary purposes of the Spirit is to convict. Right? Part of the reason we should come to church, of course, we want the Spirit to be leading us in our worship. Those who worship should worship in spirit and in truth. Then we should expect conviction. We should want God to show us how we're not living in accordance with His Word. How we're not thinking in accordance with the Word. That's what, we, that's what the believer wants. We want conviction for our sins so that we would repent. And the Spirit, of course, delights in doing that. Because that's what we need. So the Spirit, again, is conveyed as seven lamps of fire. Fire being representative of judgment. The Spirit has come to bring judgment upon the earth. To convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Also before the throne is a sea of glass. Now, the sea in the ancient world, we tend to think of it as a place to go on vacation. We go to Cannon Beach or whatever. But the sea in the ancient world was seen as a terrifying thing. In many cases, it was a barrier. It prevented you from going from one place to another. And that's probably what's being conveyed here. And yet, uh, the sea is made of glass. So there's a barrier separating us between separating us from God. In a sense, we can see his attributes as displayed in creation, and he sees us perfectly. But there is still a barrier. We can know God, we can know about God, but we cannot be with God because there's a barrier separating us. And so this is probably reflecting his holiness. Interesting, Revelation 21 notes that in the new heavens and new earth, there is no sea. Suggesting that that barrier that separates us from God, that that sea of glass has been removed because everything has been made holy. We are now holy even as he is holy. It says, in the center and around the throne, the four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind were there. The first creature was like a lion and the second creature like a calf. Or an ox. And the third creature had a face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. Now, these four creatures um, are actually uh, appear to be combinations of two other scenes in Scripture. When God presented himself to some prophets. The first, of course, was Isaiah. When Isaiah had his scene uh, in the temple, in Isaiah 6. And also Ezekiel, when Ezekiel had, uh, in the beginning of the chapters of Ezekiel, he saw the wheel, turning in wheel. And then there was a vision of these beasts. And it seems like uh, what's happened here is, um, in this imagery, is those, the, the, the two different beasts have been combined together. Like the cherubim of Ezekiel, they possess four faces and they have eyes all around. And they have six wings and declare holy, 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 which draws from the temple scene in Isaiah. And again, because I think these are combinations of these uh, two different scenes of angels surrounding the throne of God, uh, it leads me to believe, again, this isn't an actual scene, but it's just symbolism. What matters isn't this isn't so much conveying an actual throne room in heaven as much as it's saying what heaven and earth really should be like with all of creation praising God. And again, like all the other symbolic imagery already covered, we can't be dogmatic about what they symbolize. But it does appear that they symbolize creation, particularly God's creatures. 
The word living creature is the word zoa, which just frankly means those which have life. Right? Zoe. The word zoe means, it's a girl's name, it just means full of life. And so they represent the whole of animate creation, perhaps representing the noblest, the strongest, the most intelligent of and fastest of God's creatures. Right? For instance, you have the lion, right? which even today we still call the king of beasts. An ox, right? The most powerful of all the domesticated animals. I mean, the ox, oxen can, you know, they're, they're huge beasts, but they're actually, but they're submissive and they, they serve. And you, of course, you have men, right? We're the king of all the sentient creatures, intelligent beings. We have mind and an eagle, right? The king of all the birds, and I think a strong defense for understanding the symbolism in this way is actually the key verse in this chapter, verse 11. And it's this emphasis on what God created, right? Look at that. It says, you created, right? Emphasis on his creative work. Right? He's just describing creatures. You created all things. And because of your will, they existed and were created. Again, this emphasis on creation. God created these things. Well, he created these things well, if he created these things, what should the response be? Worship. In fact, the, the, the fact these creatures are full of eyes in front, behind, again, it draws from Ezekiel 1.18, where the, the wheels possessed eyes there. And it, it, the, the point there, and as well as here, is that they're able to see everything all around, beholding the glory of God. And this is actually demonstrated in their eternal song of praise. It says, day and night, they never cease. Why? Because they see God's glory everywhere. They can't stop but praise. They can't stop praising. They say, holy, 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 there's, there's nothing like you. You're separated from us. You're unique. You are the powerful one, the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. You're eternal. And so this brings us to the second portion. We've, there, there, all this symbolism, again, emphasizes God is worthy of worship. And then, of course, 8 through 11 is all of creation properly worshiping him. God's glory is both recognized and... Daniel, can you go ahead and flip the next slide, bud? God's glory is both recognized and responded to rightly by every creature upon the earth. And this was God's original design before man ruined it by bringing sin into the world. But as God's creatures observe his glory in creation, like we should be in constant awareness of, of his glory. Right? Romans 1.20 says that since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes have been clearly on display. His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made. So we have enough understanding of God that shows us He deserves all of our worship. But the point there, of course, in Romans 1 is that He doesn't get it because of man's pride. And the two attributes that are highlighted by these four creatures in their song are first God's holiness. Right, it's praised in the threefold cry of, of holy. And again, the main idea behind holiness is God's separateness, his uniqueness. 
Uh, there's nothing else like him. To, to speak of God's holiness really is to speak of his godness. Right? What makes God God? That's his holiness. It emphasizes that he's entirely unique. In fact, all the elements symbolized in the throne room point to the holiness of God. Right? He's worshipped by a holy people. Which, again, because the, the 24 elders are separated and they're, they're clothed in white with crowns on thrones. He's terrifying in his judgment. Right? That's the point of the lightning and the lamps of fire. He's separated from the rest of his creatures by that sea of glass. And again, they, they declare that he's worthy of worship from all his creatures because there's nothing else like him. So he's praised for his holiness, but he's also um, seen here in his self and praised for his self-existence or his aseity. The word aseity is the theological term. It just means that, that God didn't have a beginning or an end. He is self-existence. He's always, he's always been. It's slightly different than eternality because it's not talking so much about how long he's been around, which eternality has a kind of a time aspect to it, but it's just his, his, the nature of his self-existent being. Right? And that's really what was being conveyed when he came to Moses and said, declared that his name was Yahweh, or I am that I am. In other words, nobody created me. I've always been, and I give life to all things. Right, the parallel statement to this is verse 9, who lives forever and ever. Right? And he's also praised in who was and is and is to come. So God is worthy to be worshipped because his existence is always and everlasting in, in opposition to everything else. Everything else comes into being when he chooses it to. And he takes that life when he chooses it to. So because... He gives life to everything. Everything owes its existence to him. They owe him his worship because at any point, if he so chose, they would cease to be. And that's why, of course, he's worthy to receive all glory and honor and praise from everything. You'll also note in verses 9 through 10 that as the four living creatures, again, that represent, I believe, all of creation as they recognize the holiness and self-existence of God, then the redeemed saints, represented by the 24 elders, acknowledge further that he's therefore worthy of worship. So this pictures all of creation seeing the glory of God together, as they should, as it says in Romans 1. And then the redeemed who recognize that on that basis, he is worthy of worship. So all of creation sees the glory of God. Because it's shining forth everywhere, but it's the redeemed saints that recognize that and say, therefore, he's worthy of worship. And they can say that because their eyes have been opened to see his glory. And the casting of the crown simply affirms what they say. He is the one who is worthy to receive glory, honor, and power, and not them. Even though they might be the chief of all of God's creatures as men. They don't deserve praise. Only God. And so the fundamental point of the text is that God alone is worthy of worship. Because he's infinitely greater than everything else. Nothing can be compared to him. He alone is self-existent. And everything in creation from amoebas to angels owes its existence to him. 
Jonathan Edwards, in his uh, dissertation concerning the end for which God created the world, which is essentially a, a thorough defense of his argument that God's chief end in everything that he does is to bring himself glory. In that, in that treatise, Edwards explains that God essentially created everything because he delighted in himself. Because he delighted in glorifying himself, but he specifically created man so that men could share in the same delight that God had in God's glory. As, yeah, that, that men could enjoy God's glory as much as God enjoyed his own glory. God wanted to share his delight in himself with creatures so that they could enjoy his glory as well. Because it's, his glory is the greatest thing in all creation, the most loving thing he could do is to allow others to enjoy it also. So the point being, God's chief end is to glorify himself, and therefore man's chief end is to glorify God. They work together, and, and both being what is best for both. What, what we need and what God needs is God's glory. And since this is man's chief end, when man functions according to this end is when man is most satisfied. And so Edwards affirms essentially what the Western Shorter Catechism stated, that the chief end of man is not just to glorify God, but also to enjoy him forever. Or as John Piper put it, God is most satisfied in us. No, sorry. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Man's chief end is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Piper says it that way. So the point being, Christian duty and Christian delight go together. In fact, we have to recognize that. God doesn't just want obedient worshipers, because true obedience means our, our affections are involved in it. Right? Praise the Lord. Love God. Grieve your sin. Like our, our, we can't, we're not, Christianity is not stoical. Like our affections have to be involved. If we have cold affections for God, or we have higher affections for things of this world, we have to see that that's sin and we have to confess it and we have to repent from it and, 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 and seek to know why is that it's wrong. So just like we can see bad behavior in our life and grieve it, we should also grieve our lack of adoration of God. J.I. Packer said this, to give oneself to hallowing God's name as one's life task means that living Though never a joy ride will become increasingly a joy road. And so in order to help us realize our created purpose and our greatest joy, God has explicitly commanded that men worship him. As it says in Romans 1-2, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's worship Him. Father, I pray that you would again increase our awareness 
of who you are so that our hearts would be inflamed with joy and worship. Lord, that, that, that your worship, your glory, your adoration would be the all-consuming passion in our life. That we would stop just thinking about what we want and be consumed with wanting people to know you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.